I get to do one of the most fun things about being a pastor, and that's introduce somebody new. Evan and Lisa, can you all come up here for a moment and bring somebody with you? (laughs) Parents learn very quickly on when they arrive. Nobody's interested in them. It's all about the baby. (laughs) And I don't think this guy's been introduced to the church yet, right? Okay. We want to see who this little guy is. May get a look at him? All right, let's tell everybody his name and when he was born and any other particulars you want to give. Uh, his name is Leo Maya Freed. He was born on May 11th. Um, very good. We're very excited to have him brought up forward and uh, we're thankful to have him in your life and to see you guys parenting him and helping him grow. He looks like he's doing very well. He doesn't like that bright light, but he's doing really well. But uh, we're really excited for you all. So congratulations. God bless you all. All right. Thank you for coming up. Thank you, Lisa. We're going to look at the life of Esther today, as I told you, and a very interesting story. Very interesting. And hope that you've had a chance to uh, learn this story before. If not, today's a great day to do that. What a powerful story of faith and courage. (coughs) Have you ever known (coughs) in your life that something bad was about to happen and that you were powerless to stop it? You you, you could see the doom and gloom. You could just see the dark cloud on the horizon. And uh, you you just couldn't do anything about it. It's just coming. It's not a good feeling, is it? Now, fun to see. Some of you have a dark cloud right now. And maybe this message is particularly for you today. I don't know. That, that's God's business, to work on your heart. And I pray that somehow the words uh, of this story um, will, will connect with you and with your story. Our Bible character today is Esther. She learned something uh, horrible, something terrible is about to happen to her and her, her people. She found out that the Jews were about to be exterminated by an enemy. They were already exiles in uh, the land of Persia. And thankfully, her cousin Mordecai that had raised her after her parents died, knew God, knew about God's promises, and he encouraged her heart greatly when she tended to panic, tended to uh, let her anxieties get the best of her. God moved in, God saved them from their enemies, but their deliverance required something of Esther. It required her trust, it required her confidence in God. So God could move in her confidence. And I want you to think about that today. God did the saving, but he only did it when Esther showed confidence in God to do the saving. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you help us as we open your word together today, that our hearts would be open to you, that we would not be distracted, we would not be uh, filled with a lot of other thoughts, but that we would focus our attention on you and that we would learn from you. I pray for me to get out of the way and for your word just to be uh, spoken clearly, brought out, so that uh, all of us could be drawn to you, drawn to whatever lesson you want to teach us today. And I pray, Lord, that that, uh, I would not cause any distraction in that, uh, but that you would be able to just speak to all of us today uh, through Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, we want to think about the providence of God. The providence of God is God governing in the world uh, with love and wisdom and and justice. 
It's his governance of the world by which he cares for and directs all things in the universe because God is sovereign. Now, he doesn't require, he doesn't force people to do things against their will, so a lot of bad stuff is going on, a lot of bad choices are being made. But ultimately, God achieves his purposes by his providence. By his providence, at just the right time, God moves. He's never a minute early and he's never too late. But sometimes we wish he'd come sooner. Sometimes we wish he'd delay. He's always perfect in his timing. I want you to think about that too. As God's children, we have to keep placing confidence in him, not in our own thoughts and actions. We can't push him. We can't delay him. We put confidence in him. Esther and Mordecai learned that God had a plan to save Israel from their enemy even before the enemy knew he had a plan. Even before the enemy concocted a plan, God was working on a solution to that plan. You don't sneak up on God. You don't surprise God with anything. He is not limited by time. He is in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. All at the same time. Something different than us. And yet he works out his will in perfect timing. Timing in the here and now. Timing in our, our limitedness of time. God works outside of time, but he works in time, in perfect timing. God saved the Jews in ancient Persia, but he required the absolute trust of Esther and her cousin Mordecai. And her trust in God demonstrated her confidence, her courage, as she approached King Xerxes to plead her case. Do you trust God's providence? Big question for today. Do you trust God's providence? Do you trust that God is working and that God will work in your life? Augustine said that we should trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. I think that's a pretty wise thing. How long have you been a Christian this morning? Maybe some of you are not yet Christians, but if you're a Christian, how long has it been? Have you been a Christian a few months, a few years, maybe many years? Have you learned that God is trustworthy in your life? That you can trust him with your very life? Have you learned that you can trust him with your circumstances, whatever they may be, good or bad? He can take any of those circumstances and he can work his will through those circumstances. You need to trust him for that. A well-known theologian was once asked to prove the existence of God. And he said, I can do that with just two words. I said, really? How can you prove the existence of God with just two words? What are they? He said, the Jews. <laughs> Think about Jewish history. Think that from ancient history to today, many nations have attempted to exterminate God's chosen people, starting with the ancient Egyptians who tried to enslave them and then tried to kill off all of their newborn sons. Think about how they chased them into the wilderness. Think about the Philistines and other nations that as they went into the promised land, they tried to fight them to annihilate them when they arrived. Think of Assyria, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, who massacred thousands of Jews and who exiled from their land, which is our story today, and who destroyed their temple and sometimes outlawed their worship in God. Think of the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the, the Byzantine Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Crusaders. Think of Nazi Germany. Think of Russia. Think of Iran. All have singled out this people group. They've singled out the Jews for persecution and for genocide, we still have Jews today, many of them. Today, the Jewish nation 
Israel is surrounded on every border by countries who have declared their intention to destroy Israel. But somehow they cannot destroy Israel. Miraculously, the Jewish people remain a distinct people, one of the smallest yet most powerful of all nations. Certainly, they are indestructible because of God. In fact, as one Jewish historian put it, we have a friend in high places, so play nice. <laughs> God has just watched over the Jews, and it's shown in this story. This is one particular example of that. And we're going to look at one of these attempts to wipe out God's people. It records an event that happened around 480 B.C. during the reign of King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. Some of the Jews, by this time, the Jews taken there in exile, had been allowed to return to Israel in order to start rebuilding Jerusalem, eventually rebuild the temple and the walls and everything. But most of them had stayed in Persia, maybe even two to three million of them by this time. The setting of our story is in the palace in Susa, the capital city of Persia. The main characters are King Xerxes, Esther, and Esther's older cousin, Mordecai. The villain of the story is a kind of a pr prime minister of Persia. His name is Haman. So kind of get these names in your head this morning. As the book of Esther opens, we discover that Xerxes was celebrating all of his many accomplishments. He had a seven-day feast of all his nobles and all the high-ranking officials. He had all the generals there. He had all the nobles of his court there. And at the end of this celebration, when everybody's good and drunk and good and happy, he decides to bring out his queen, Queen Vashti, so that everyone could marvel at her beauty, which wasn't the point. The point was for them to envy the king who had such a beautiful wife. Xerxes wanted to impress his guests with how stunningly beautiful his trophy wife was. And you see how big his ego was. Well, Queen Vashti refused to be paraded in front of everybody like that. Uh, she refused to come out like some kind of prize, and it threw Xerxes into a rage. He consulted immediately with his advisors, who said, you know what you need to do is dethrone her. Didn't have to kill her, but just put her off the throne, get her out of her, divorce her, basically. Get her away from all of this. And we better do this because other women of our kingdom may decide that they would disobey their husbands also. And boy, what will we do then? So Xerxes decreed, following this, that they would try to find a new queen. Of course, he's into beautiful women. So he says, the way we're going to do this, we're going to go across the kingdom. We're going to find the most uh, beautiful, the brightest young women of Persia that we could possibly find and give them the opportunity to be the new queen. The finalists are going to be given a year-long beauty treatment, and then they're going to be presented one after another to the king for his inspection. It sounds a little bit like a Miss Universe pageant, doesn't it? Maybe no bathing suits, I'm not sure. Maybe no talents. I don't know what they did, but the king had his eye out for the most beautiful, most stunning, smartest woman he could find to be his new queen. And it's all about him in this. Well, Esther, who is this young Jewish maiden, is somehow chosen. She's beautiful, she's intelligent. Somebody takes her and says, Maybe you should be one of the contestants. And she passes into the finals. And she goes into the beauty treatment. And then one after another, they were each brought before the king. And lo and behold, she wins. <laughs> She's selected as the new queen of Persia. But nobody knows there that she is a Jew. 
Nobody knows her background. They don't know where she came from somehow. Mordecai has advised her not to talk about this. And since he had raised her from childhood, that's what she obeyed. Well, this Mordecai, her cousin that had raised her, had the distinction of being a person who had once saved the king's life. While he was staying close to the palace each day, trying to hear any word of how Esther was doing, he overheard a conversation between two of King Xerxes' uh, guards. And they were plotting an assassination of the king. And he took this message to someone else in the kingdom. They brought it to Xerxes' attention. The men were caught and both of them executed. The chief enemy of the Jewish exiles, as I said, was Haman. He was a noble in the king's court. He was one who was highly favored by Xerxes. Haman hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow before him. As he would walk past people, most people would bow because of the noble walking by. But Mordecai only bowed for God. And Haman didn't like that. He stood, stood tall and refused to bow before him. And he hated Jews anyhow. This powerful reason for his hatred came not just from that, but the fact that uh, Haman's family and the Jews had been at war for centuries by this time. Haman was an Amalekite, a nation that God had said the Israelites would war against generation after generation. There was no love lost between these two men, I can assure you. So fierce was his hatred for the Jews that he contrived a plan to get King Xerxes to pass a, a law, an edict, that the Jews could be hunted down on a certain day, not too many weeks away. In Persia, once a rule was made by the king, not even the king could change it. So he went to the king and slyly said, you know, I want to make this law, I want to exterminate this people. And the king says, I like you, go ahead and make whatever law you want. And so it came out, this edict, that in a few weeks, on a certain day, all of the Jews would be hunted down by their enemies and they couldn't even defend themselves. In the middle of this crisis now, we enter the storyline of Esther. Just as Esther and Mordecai are praying to God for deliverance from what they're hearing. So let's pick it up. Let's go to Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that he had done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is where they expressed their grief. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, signed to attend her, ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and he reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials 
And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night, night or day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. We need to understand the threat, the absolute threat that the Jews felt when that edict hit the streets, when that was posted throughout Susa and into the surrounding cities and towns and villages. All across the land, there was this wailing. People put on sackcloth and they, they covered their heads with ashes and they just laid there you know, in mourning because death was coming. There was no way around it. Most of the people felt helpless before this edict, before this threat on their lives and the lives of their children. Haman's plan was to kill everybody in the Jewish nation. And there's a long history of war between these two, Mordecai's people and Haman's people. In Esther 3.1, Haman is described as an Agagite. Now, that means King Agag, who was an Amalekite. He's from this same line. He's a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites. And maybe you don't remember that history. Let me tell you what that history was. When the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt, they were starting to make their way up to the promised land. And when they got to a certain point, the Amalekites, that they were passing their country, came up and attacked them from behind. Anybody straggling behind, anybody that was having trouble, anybody that was crippled, anybody that had a bunch of flocks you know, to take care of and they just couldn't move as fast, they would attack the weakest among them, the most vulnerable among, among them, and these, these are not courageous people. These are people that just take an advantage, plundering. And they attack them over and over again. And in Deuteronomy 25, 17, it says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and they cut off all who were lagging behind, they had no fear of God. And when the Lord of God gives you rest from the, all the enemies around you and the land he's given you to possess in his inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. This is what God put on the Israelites. Don't forget what the Amalekites did to you. And so they became the sworn enemies of the Israelites. You also remember what God told King Saul. Quite some time later, after they got their first king, they had another battle with the Amalekites. This is when King Agag is king. And Saul was told to attack them and to utterly destroy them and everything that belonged to them. But what did Saul do? He didn't obey. He attacked them. He defeated them. 
But he allowed King Agag to live, and he took all of the plunder for himself. Saul was removed as king because of this, because he would not obey God. And because of his disobedience, Israel was jeopardized by the Amalekites over and over again. In the story of Esther, Haman is the Amalekites seeking to destroy the people of God. This was true every generation through. Now back to our story. Even though she was queen, she's won the contest, she's been in a new relationship as the wife of the king and everything, still it's a different world. It's not like you live together all the time. It's not like we have in our houses, you know, and you have husband and wife together doing everything together, you know, making it work in their life and so on. King is king. Queen is over here. She's got her own palace. She's got her own maidens taking care of her. She's got her own guard system. And when it pleases the king, he would call for her. And she would come to the king. Now, Probably he had many wives, so she was just one of many. And he had not summoned her for 30 days. She'd seen the king, he was pleased with her. They were husband and wife, but it's a very different setup. And to go into the king's court uninvited means certain death in most cases. Anybody just walked in there, they were not you know, invited. They just died. They'd take them out and execute them. Mordecai convinced her, however, that God had put her in a unique position just so she could save her people. Just for such a time as this, he said. But would she have the courage? <laughs> That's the question. Would she have the courage to risk her own life so that she could ask the king to save her people? Esther asked Mordecai and her countrymen to fast and pray for three days. And during that time, she planned how she would approach the king. She came up with this plan where she was going to just invite the king, if he let her in the throne room at all, to invite him to dinner. And to invite Haman to dinner, who's beside him. And then she had a plan that she was going to follow after that. And I don't have time to tell you all of that, uh, except that eventually she was going to ask the king to make Haman accountable for what he had done to her people and to confess that she was a Jew. And in fact, she and her people would die unless the king did something about it. And in that plan was success. She went before the king. He allowed her to speak her request. She had the dinner with him. She had a second dinner with him and Haman. And then she revealed everything. And the king was enraged with Haman. Haman was executed. Haman's estate was given to Esther, who passed it along to Mordecai. Mordecai was raised to such a position that eventually he became second in power to the king, King Xerxes, himself in the land of Persia. The Jews have ever since celebrated this victory on the day of Purim, a holiday commemorating their freedom and their victory over their enemies. It's one of their lesser holidays, but still one they celebrate with gusto because this was a time they won everything. They won all, all goods. There's much more to this amazing, awesome story, but can't go into that. You can read it for yourself. Esther's faith and courage are the great example that I want to speak of today. I want to speak to this faith and courage that each of us needs to have because we too are God's people. God loves us just as much as he loved the Jews and he has pledged to protect and to provide for us. And God always makes good on his promises in due time. Not always according to our time schedule, but always he does protect and provide 
in due time. Now let's think about time for a minute. Mordecai said to Esther, who knows but that you have come to royalty, to this royal position for such a time as this. What is such a time for you or me? What are you in right now? What are you dealing with right now? What are your circumstances? What are, are the, the occasions of your life going on right now? Are you down? Are you hurt? Are you troubled? Are you facing the dark cloud? What is it that you're going through right now? What is such a time for you? Do you have a hopeless situation? Is there something in your life that's almost crushing you? Or making you feel like you can't go on? Are you beginning to panic about something? Are you living in fear? If so, then God's got something to say to you through this life of Esther. Learn from her example. I'll share a couple of things. I hope you write them down because you may need this. You may not need it today. You may need it two weeks from now or a year from now. But you can learn from what Esther did because she handled it exactly the right way. And you can too. First of all, do not live in fear. Live in faith. Big difference. Some people panic. Some people, you know, are like overcome by their circumstances. A faithful person never needs to be that way. If you live in faith, you live in confidence of God. You don't live in your own confidence and your own ability or your own you know, ability to solve something or to work through something. Your confidence in God. I don't know how, but God is going to do this. That's what Mordecai said to Esther. He said, God has put you in this position probably just to save your people. But if you don't do it, he'll save them some other way because God's in the business of saving his people. That was his confidence. And a person that is a Christian doesn't live in fear, you live in faith. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid. Rather, it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Second Timothy 1.7 Secondly, remember God's promises. Remember these mighty and great promises that God has given to us. And then if you need to, hit the refresh button on your heart. You know, you do that with your computer or some other device. Maybe you need a refresh button today. Remember the great promises of God like these. 1 John 4, 4. The one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Can you grab that one? Yeah, I can. 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love. Cast out fear. Don't ever forget Jesus' words in Hebrews 13.5. Often I bring these up to my mind. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's, that's a mighty promise. And when I remember that promise, it brings boldness and courage to my heart that I didn't have just the moment before. Third thing we need to do like Esther, when you're tempted to panic, throw yourself upon the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety upon the Lord, for He cares for you. You know, you got anything, just throw it on Him, because His shoulders are bigger than yours. And He can handle whatever comes. He's not surprised by anything. He's not overwhelmed by anything. Just put it on Him, because you're not big enough to handle this. Romans 8, 35, and some other verses following that say, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You could make a whole list there. Shall any of these separate us from the love of God? No. No, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, 
nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the promise. You hold on to that promise. You remind yourself of what God has said to you and you, you throw yourself on the God for that. And then finally, that gives you the ability to walk in confidence. It gives you the ability to live courageously. The face of your circumstances. Walk in the knowledge that God's got your back. That God has this situation. There is no situation that is greater than God. Nothing that it can overcome. And nothing that can cause him to panic. Trust his providence. Trust his care. Trust him for the outcomes of this circumstance. Trust him for the results. Because that's his business. That's not yours. Your business is to walk in confidence and to live courageously. God is preparing Esther for her crisis long before Esther knew she was going to have one. Even before the crisis developed, before Haman had it in his heart, I'm going to get rid of every one of them. I'm going to find a law that annihilates all the Jews. Even before that happened, for a year prior to that, God is getting Esther in as the queen, preparing for what is about to happen. And they have no clue. This is going to happen. Has that ever happened to you? Have you had some kind of circumstance developing? Have you seen you know, something going on in your life? And then later on, God said, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I was ready for that. You weren't, but I was ready. I've got you covered on this. God is not surprised by anything that surprises us. God has a solution better than any solution we'll ever come up with. Esther, Mordecai, don't even know what a solution might be, but they say, we know a God who solves, a God who fixes things, who can make it right. And instead of being hammered by their enemies, they achieve the upper hand, they put away their enemies, the Amalekites forever. Haman's victory party was turned into a defeat, and everything that Haman had had became Mordecai's, which was his dreaded enemy, you know? It's like the most ironic situation ever. And God did it all. We have people in our church that have some circumstances. I don't think they're here today, Hector and Michelle. Maybe that's just as well, but I want you to think about them for a moment. When she was pregnant, seven or eight, nine months ago, what did the doctors say? Things don't look good. We're not sure anything good's going to come out of this pregnancy. She went into the hospital and spent months in the hospital, waiting and waiting and waiting. Doctors were still not very positive about things. Uh, there's a little hope here, but just a little. You know what hope is? Gabriella. She's three months old today. She's doing great. God had that well in hand before they ever got into the problems. And when anybody else was saying negative, God said, don't worry about this. And I saw in Hector and Michelle a tremendous amount of faith and boldness and confidence. I think you saw it too. God's going God's to do something here. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to happen, but he's going to do it. And they had that confidence. I've told you this story before about Bob and Sherry Sinessa, former members of our church, now live down south uh, by Redford. And uh, they, they went through this with their third daughter, the time they found out she was pregnant for the third time, uh, they also found out that she had a tumor on her ovaries. And the doctors said to her very specifically, 
you need to abort this baby and save your life. And they said, we don't believe in that. We're going to hold on to God instead. We'll let that tumor do whatever it's going to do, but we're going to see this pregnancy through. They did. Aaron was born, beautiful young lady today. I mean, she just stunningly beautiful inside and out. Just a, a great person. And Sherry went on after the birth and, and uh, had the tumor dealt with. She's never had any other repercussions from that cancer. None. God knew what he was doing. And they trusted him and God came through. I'm not promising you today that every negative situation in your life will be corrected by God every time. I'm not promising you that. I don't know what God's providence will do in your circumstance. That's his business because he's the one that does the outcomes and the results, not us. But what I'm saying is this. No matter what your circumstances are, the very best and wisest course of action is to put your hope in God and to trust him Trust his providence to do whatever is best in due time, in his timing. You trust him, you trust his timing. And whatever your circumstance may be, God will know the best thing to do. And God has promised to do that. And I hope you see why Esther's story is so important to us. In the lower story, are all these characters, and they're just living their life. You know, and they, they've got no idea that God is, is doing certain things. They're unaware of that. And they're just living their lives day to day. And, and things start happening. And they're not very happy things. And they're not very hopeful things. And, and there's a lot of negativity in them. But in this upper story, God is, God is doing this marvelous work behind the scenes, really over the scenes, and creating something for the future so that His providence can be accomplished. His will can be done. God was putting everything together, everything in place, step by step. And His plan was perfect. And perfect time. Maybe you feel like your own life is a series of meaningless events that just happened to you. You may not see any pattern in our life. But just as in the story of Esther, God is always, always, always directing things behind the scenes. We see the lower story, but God is working the upper story. And God is doing the same for you and me as he did for Esther because he loves us, because he cares about us, because he wants the best for us. And every one of us has a part in his plan. Every one of us. Don't ever feel that you don't. And God wants to work in your life today. Will you trust him? Will you put your confidence in Him? I hope so. Because <laughs> He is worthy of that trust. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for Esther's life to make a difference in ours. I pray that we would not hold on to our fears, hold on to our panic, hold on to ourselves trying to solve things ourselves. I pray that we would not even hold on to the timing to dictate to you when to move and what to do, but simply to put our trust and our confidence in you. God, you are, are so worthy of that. You have come through so many times. Your promises are great. They are true. And we need to just hold on to you and to your promises. I pray for anyone here today, specifically, Lord, even though I don't know their circumstances, 
that you do, that they will be encouraged today in their faith. And when they've had just a trinkling of, uh, uh, of faith, just a little bit of faith, I pray that faith would grow, Lord. I pray that they would, would uh, bring that faith to you, bring that little bit of confidence to you. And as they exercise that, as they place it in you, the one worthy of that confidence, that faith can grow and mature. Bless them in that, Lord. Whatever circumstances somebody in here today is facing, help them to know that you are not ignorant of those circumstances, that you are fully aware, fully engaged in their life. That in this lower story where we're going through a lot of different things, we need to just trust you, that you are achieving your purposes in the upper story, and that your providence will accomplish your will every time. We ask for your blessing now as we put our faith in you and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to sing song with us now. Bolster your faith. Give me faith. Give me faith, Lord. Remember the man that said, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Yeah, grab onto God today. Let's sing to him together. Would you stand, please?